Hello, and welcome to Control Out Delete, a bezel-free podcast from The Verge. By the way, that intro is brought to you by, uh, brought to us by Pavan Singh. That's Mr. Pavan Singh on Twitter. We love your intros. Uh, anyhow, I am Neelai Patel, the editor-in-chief of The Verge. I'm joined, as always, by my friend, Verge executive editor, Recode editor-at-large, Walter Mossberg. How's it going, Walt? It's gone great. No bezels here. No bezel. Bezel free. No bezels. It's We're big. bezel free here. We had a great piece on the site by Thomas Ficker this morning called "Hey Sony, Your Bezel Is Showing," which I thought yeah, was, was I read great. that piece. I think whatever uh, we did the LG G6 review this week, uh, we obviously looked at the S8. The the trend in phones to be totally bezel free is setting up a real moment for Apple on this next no. iPhone. I gotta say. Yeah. Oh no. That that's right. I mean, you know, the next iPhone has to be spectacular, and one of the Part, one of the aspects that is, and it won't even be spectacular because others have done it, but, I mean, they've got to get rid of most of the be- – let's let's be clear. There are still little yeah, tiny bezels that are necessary from an engineering perspective. And there's actually some argument that not having a bezel makes the phone hard to hold or easier to smudge or, you know, covers part of the screen. So there's, you know, there's a little argument there. But on the whole, I would rather have um, less bezel. Well, I mean, the, the, more cowbell, less more, bezel. More cowbell. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, Samsung's argument is they can put a smaller phone in. They can make the phone smaller. No, for no, a larger I get screen, it. I get it totally because uh, they do these curved screens. I, it's 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 interesting. It's it's the physical design of the phone has. I wouldn't call it stagnant because it's not, it's not been that long, but it's been pretty constant for several years now. Well, and it I works. Think, and I mean, you know, I, I don't hear people saying, "Geez, I hate these." I mean, except. People like us and people in our business, but you know, if I walk into Starbucks right now and took a survey of everyone with an iPhone, which is you know, ninety nine percent of everyone in the Starbucks, yeah, um, and said, "Do you hate those bezels?" They go, "What? Those what?" You know, they don't know. Yeah, but, don't, I, but if you yeah. asked, would you like a larger screen and a smaller phone? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They would. They would. Yes. I mean, Absolutely. like, no one hated the design of their StarTac either. People loved it, you know, but right. the, the next thing comes and suddenly the old thing's I get it. I'm all for it. Um, I've written it. Yeah. I've written that they need to do it, and I'm all for it. Uh, so, while we're on Apple. Yeah, so just so the audience knows, uh, we I want to talk about Apple a little bit because Apple did some crazy stuff. Walt wrote about Sonos this week. I think you all know that Walt and I can talk about Sonos for hours and hours. Uh, but I suggested that to Walt, and he mentioned that we have to end by talking about the great broadband carriers of America and what they're up to. So those are the three things this week. But let's just start with Apple. Right. So Apple did something they rarely do, which is they uh, – not never, but rarely – it, which is that they admitted they screwed up this week. I mean, that's basically the headline. <laughs> uh, they, they and they did it by calling in a small group of you know relatively friendly. Yeah, I I'd know, call them friendlies. Friendly. They're I good mean, they're, they're but not friendlies. not unethical or bad in any way. I mean, they're they're good. They're good journalists, but they're they're not anybody that's going to surprise or shock Apple. I don't think. And they wrote they didn't go easy on Apple in the stories. I want to make that clear. But they called in a small group of reporters and they. And they had senior people, they had Phil Schiller and Craig Federighi there, and they said the Mac Pro, which, you know, listeners to this podcast undoubtedly know what it is, but I'm not sure everyone in the world knows what it is. You know, it's their high-end desktop uh, computer for pros, which is very, I think, attractive, you know, kind of broke with the tradition of being boring looking for those kind of computers, was, in making it attractive, uh, designed in such a way that they couldn't they couldn't put in much more powerful GPUs that are being incorporated into other pro computers. Well, it's set, it's set the stage a little bit more. The Mac Pro was introduced in, what, 2013? Yeah. It has literally not been changed. Not It hasn't been spec bumped. It hasn't had the con- basic configuration change. It's changed. because they can't they, handle, they can't figure out. The only, the spec bumps, they are going to do a little bit of they, a tiny they, bit They of announced one bump. here. But this product has just been... And now I will use the word stagnant has been stagnant for a long right. time, and it's and they reveal why, and the why is that to make a truly significant a change in it, which people would want, they basically they bet on the wrong, not only the wrong design and thermals setup, but they bet on the wrong uh, GPU path. They right. did two smaller parallel GPUs, which nothing wrong with that in theory. That's that's. You know, if you get enough parallel, any kind of uh, of uh, microprocessors, you get a lot of power. But the industry went a different way. The the and and 
big uh, single G, single GPUs that give off a lot of heat are the thing. The problem is they can't be inserted into the current design of the Mac Pro because the thermals, uh, because the thing is small and, like I said, I think attractive. It's cylindrical and yeah. ebony, black, shiny, and all that, uh, but it doesn't have the, the, the thermal capacity inside. That's one of the things you give up when you do great, when you go for design, so that they could have changed course. So they are starting like, all, all over again. They're doing an all-new Mac Pro. They didn't say when they started it. They did say it would not be out this year, which suggests they started it fairly recently. Very soon. And it probably, my guess is it's a 2018 thing. Yeah. Uh, but they admitted they screwed up. And the reason, this is really, and, and they also said they're going to have a more pro-oriented iMac, mm-hmm. um, which doesn't mean it's a little different there. I don't think it means they're going to get rid of the more consumery iMacs, but they're going to have them some kind of, you know, let's call it an iMac Pro. They didn't use that <laughs> term, but, you yeah. know. And I mean, for example, the video editors of The Verge, we they A, they refer to the Mac Pro as trash cans, yeah. which many of pros that I know do, yeah. uh, but they don't want trash cans. They want iMacs. So all of our videos, for the most part, are edited in iMacs because all right. it's a you better know, I mean, computer I, I, that, for that I'm, use at this moment in time than the pro. Where I sit, I'm right next to a whole bunch of video editors and they're all using uh, iMacs. So yep. some of them are using Mac Pros, actually. Yeah. Um, so, you know, they understand that. And this whole thing, in addition to being an unusual admission uh, that they screwed up, the other interesting thing about it was it's a it's a moment when they wanted to address their pro users. And I saw various calculations and different stories, but, you know, the, the percentage of Apple's Mac user base that is pro is fairly and that that is so pro that it that it's really needs this cutting edge power is fairly small mm-hmm. but it's it, it these are the people that develop iOS apps these are the people that they, I mean they have to keep these people happy they're very vocal they used to be an enormous part of Apple's user base when Apple yep. was much smaller but they're still very vocal and they're still very important to Apple so that was what this is about well as you always remind me the Mac all by itself would be a Fortune 500 company, right? Oh, it would be a Fortune 150 company. So the Mac business is huge. If you're it's telling, about, it's about 25 billion, right? Something like and if that. If you're telling 24. me that any percentage of that company that buys the most expensive product you make is mad, then you actually do have a problem. So I I, I read all those stories and they, you know they all recapitulated the math. You know, Apple's a huge company and this is just one percent of the the smallest part of and it's. Yeah, but no, it's, but the, you're right. it's, the, it, it, it's a huge percentage because Apple has a huge number of customers, and they're buying your absolutely most expensive products and building their businesses and careers around them. You you can't well, you and, can't and as I just said, these are the products on which people design the software and services that run on Apple's most the, the product that makes up most of Apple's revenue, which is the iPhone, the right. iOS uh, platform. So they they really want to keep these people happy. I think they've been – I don't know what's been going on. Maybe they've been desperately trying to figure out how to fix the mistake they made and finally gave up on it. Maybe they gave up on it and started the new design whenever they did. Let's say I'm just going to get – this. Is, I don't know anything. Don't yeah. take this seriously. But let's say they did it in October, started doing it in October of 2016, and they hoped not to have to talk about it until they could release it, which is classic Apple. Mm-hmm. But they decided that the noise, the, the complaining, the worry – and the possibility of people switching because Microsoft is trying to go after that market with the Surface Studio. And it's certainly working. Right? No, um, the Surface Studio is an underpowered machine for, for okay. this market. Well, they're trying to go after it and maybe some other people are too. Or maybe they're afraid they'll bulk up the, Super, the Surface Studio. Yeah. Uh, they decided to do a public briefing thing, which they did. And so that's the Apple story of the week. Uh, I, what, what gets me – so the, the thing that I am thinking about um, – and Matthew Panzerino at TechCrunch, he was one of the people invited. He wrote a great piece about it. It's in-depth. You should absolutely go read it. Highly recommended. But he's got this quote from Phil Schiller in there where he says, I asked him, when when did you decide? And Schiller says something like, I know the answer you want is 
oh, you know, it came to a head and we had a meeting and made a decision. But that's rarely how things work. And I've just been puzzling over that quote because, of course, there was a meeting. Of course, there was a de- someone made a decision. They didn't all just stumble into work one day, hung over on margaritas, and decide to cancel the match. Pro- <laughs> like, you know, like they had a meeting to plan the the conference with the journalists. I'm sorry. In the new Apple campus, there will be a margarita tap every just, 10 feet. This idea no, that the richest company in the world— look, if they if they run Apple yeah. today the way they ran it when Steve Jobs was alive, and I think there's a good chance they still do, yeah. there is a meeting, but there's a meeting. Yeah. There's not 100. I mean, there, of course, there are 100 meetings. I mean, conference rooms are filled at Apple just like they are at every company all day long. But in terms of real decision-making meetings— on big issues like this, there's a meeting. Yeah, it's with the executive team, which includes, of course, Tim Cook, but you know, and and, and Phil Schiller and Craig, and I think Craig's on the executive team. I can't believe he wouldn't be. And and Johnny Ive, and you know, it's about 14, 15 people is my guess. And they go my what Steve Jobs once explained is they go over every product that's shipping and every product their you know secret product they're planning and they and they debate about it you know how's it doing is it ahead of schedule is it behind schedule is there a problem with it should we shift strategy should we do this so of course it had to be uh, my guess is it had to be decided even if it might have maybe it took 10 minutes yeah in well just think six about different ones of those meetings and then they just decided to do it. I but, don't know. But, but like, you know, when Apple put out this Mac Pro, they made a huge deal out of the fact that it's being at least assembled in the United States and Texas. So if you're going to change that up, you have to make a big decision in Donald Trump's America about the fate of your factory in Texas. You're going to redesign the Mac Pro. Are you still going to build it in the United States of America? Are you going to do it in China so you can you know, maybe lower the cost or whatever? Like, that's a huge decision. The, yeah, no. It, you, didn't go, you didn't go on. Uh, Craig Federighi described it as like an emotional journey. You don't go on an emotional journey about whether or not you're gonna the future of your factory, where you're gonna build a product that you're gonna announce. You know, maybe next year. What did they say anything about the factory? I don't remember. No, they 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 said we'll have more to say about that in the future. So yeah. I, I just look at this, you know, and I, I don't want to do like media criticism here. I, I want to stay focused on Apple, but the way they rolled this out and what they chose to say and what not to say. And this idea that you know they listened and they know they need to get to pro customers. There's a part of this where they made this big bet on you know parallel GPU architectures, whatever. But they've had years to listen and to these high, customers. And the other bet they made was on kind of high design for sure. a group. But that's Apple's pe- bet. They always make that bet. Yeah, but not on the pro. I mean, you know, the Mac. Pro. The previous Mac Pro was also or, beautiful. It was looked looked crazy, but it was beautiful. The yeah, silver right. one with the great. I mean, people love that machine. Yeah, it was more of a it was more of a under the desk computer. This is more of an on the desk computer. But 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 the thing that pros have on their desks are huge monitors. I know. <laughs> right. Um, I know. Regardless, my my only point is, you know, they they're making this change. It's good. I'm sure pros are going to be happy. But the timeline of this change. I think is much more recent than they're letting on. And I think they are scrambling to come back to this pro Mac market because the iMac and the MacBook Pro are not – they can't do all of the things they want them to do. And I, the question I would ask is are they going to run into this situation with the rest of what the Mac does against the iPad? Because that is the big tension inside of Apple. And if they couldn't – kind of transition one part of the Mac user base to another set of Mac products. I'm wondering if they can if they have enough of a plan for the rest of the Mac line to continue in this way. And that that comes down to just how much does Apple care about the Mac? Well, they said they care about it immensely and they'll always care about it and and just the fact that it's a twenty five, twenty four, whatever it is, billion dollar business tells you that. I mean there people have this Way oversimplistic view of big companies and think, uh, okay, this is – I think the pr- right percentage is 11 percent of their business or something. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's 11 percent, so who cares about it? Well, God, I mean, <laughs> it's 11 percent. It would be number, yeah, I don't know, 150 yeah. or 149 or something on the Fortune 500. Of course they care about it. And even if they have a long-term vision of transitioning people – and I do – regardless of – something was said about this too that was negative. But I still believe mm-hmm. that 
the operating, the software matters and the operating system, the UX and the method of computing, personal computing, that people have grown up with in the last 10 years, 15 years, 10 years certainly, uh, not 15, 10, is not the GUI with the mouse. It's the touch, swipe, tap, whatever. I think that is going to invade everything. And I don't think it's going to invade everything this year or maybe even next year, but it's going to invade everything. So they have to have a plan for that. And by the way, so does everybody else. And, you know, uh, Google is moving. Uh, they, it's what Their first attempt was terrible of putting Android apps on Chromebooks, but it won't always be terrible. And Apple can say they have no interest in iOS on clamshells, and I believe them. I mean, I know Phil. Phil is not a liar. If he says we have no plans to do that, I believe he has no plans to do that. If he says we have no plans to replace x86 chips processors with all ARM while leaving room for the possibility there might be an ARM in there to do some secondary task, I believe that. But I also believe no plans doesn't mean never. And I think things may well change. So, you know, this stuff doesn't happen overnight and it takes time and uh, they have to address the pro market. That's a more that's a more immediate need and even that's going to take the next year or more. And these other things will come along in due time. They will. Yeah. I don't think they can afford to ignore it because Google's doing it and because if Microsoft can ever get apps, modern full screen touch apps uh, in any serious critical mass, which is you know, a real question. <laughs> they have set themselves up yeah. to have devices that do that, but they just don't have the apps. Yeah. So that's... That's Apple. This episode of Control Elite is brought to you by Toyota, an all-new 2017 Highlander. When the weekend comes, you don't want to sit around the house. You want to get out there with the family, explore new places, and try new things. Maybe check out a science museum, hit a festival, or just head out into nature. The new Highlander is the perfect vehicle for discovery. It starts on the outside with sleek design, aggressive new front grille that says, you've got an attitude for adventure. And its improved powertrain makes it more fun to drive and more fuel efficient than ever. It also has Toyota Safety Sense technology standard. And one of the best features is driver easy speak, which lets you broadcast what you say to the rear seat so your passengers can hear you. It doesn't mean they'll listen, but at least they'll hear you. So navigate to your nearest Toyota dealer or toyota.com and see why there's always more to discover in the new 2017 Highlander. By the way, drivers are responsible for their own safe driving. Always pay attention to your surroundings and drive safely. Depending on the conditions of road, weather, and vehicle, the systems may not work as intended. See the owner's manual for additional limitations and details. So I'm going fl- to flip our usual script with Sonos. I've got here your first review, the Sonos system from 2005. Right. <laughs> a, a great, another great Wall Street Journal headline. Yeah. Um, gadget that quote-unquote streams... Music around house. <laughs> it's great that it's in quotes. Well, you know, in 2005, <laughs> I don't know. That wasn't... Uh, anyway, gadget that quote-unquote streams music around house is terrific but pricey. I'm just reading the last line because you explain what Sonos is, but I think our, 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 our readers, our listeners all know. Your last line, if you can afford the price, Sonos is a great choice for those who want to hear computer-based music all around the house. It's 2017. It's 12 years <laughs> yeah, later. You've right. reviewed the newest Sonos, <laughs> the Playbase. I would, I would suggest... You've basically hit the same conclusion. Yeah. The only difference is, you're right, and I'll explain it in a minute, but the thing I reviewed in 2005 did not even have built-in speakers. Right. It was basically a big, super fancy, wonderful amp that at at a time when no other amp maker was doing this, they built a kind of their own Wi-Fi network, which they've since... It's still there, but it's not really necessary. And they, at the, they they weren't streaming from services because that wasn't a thing then, but they were streaming from your computer uh, music library. And they were putting it all over the house and, you know, giving you a gorgeous controller, which by itself cost $400. Mm-hmm. And the whole package, minimum package to get started with one unit, that you needed to connect to your router or a computer, I can't remember which, and not your router, probably your computer, I don't know, and or maybe both, and one unit that you could put somewhere else in your house and the controller was 1200 bucks. And I, you know, I remember talking, the company launched it at my conference and uh, I remember 
uh, talking to them uh, about this is ridiculous. The price is just ridiculous. Yeah. So fast forward to my column that that appeared today uh, or yesterday because. Uh, People are listening to this on Thursday. We're recording it on Wednesday. I wrote about the Playbase. What is the Playbase? It's a Sonos speaker. It's a very good Sonos speaker, by the way, in my opinion. It, even just if you think of it as a as a speaker for listening to music, it's great. Uh, but it's a thin, flat slab that is meant to be a base for your TV. And... It's in addition to being a great Sonos music uh, player, it it is a speaker for your TV. And you might say, well, there are there are already the, those things already exist, and Sonos even makes one. They're called some sound bars, and Sonos is called the play bar. But the point of this particular one is, it's not a separate thing. It's not something that people who have wall-mounted TVs particularly are going to want to use. It's something that can kind of melt into your TV situation in your house by just being under your TV. Mm-hmm. And yet it dramatically improves the sound from your TV. And that was the angle. I took it from, from sort of three angles. A, I used it a long time. I used it for six weeks. B, I am not an audiophile. Listeners to this podcast know that. I'm going to repeat it. I am not an audiophile. <laughs> I have no interest in a home, big home theater with multiple speakers or all that stuff. Uh, but uh, and 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 see, there is a widespread problem, which has been written about many times, uh, that the dialogue on television and on movies has become demoted, essentially, as it is in the way that these things are mixed now. Uh, they're mixed more cinematically. The sound effects could be the wind rustling leaves, whatever. The way the thing is mixed, it's hard to hear the dialogue. And this, this is exacerbated by the fact that TV sets have uh, – TV sets, what a ridiculous old <laughs> word. TVs, crystal radios. <laughs> T- TVs have become so thin that even though they all have a little bulge somewhere toward the bottom for – the electronics to yeah. you know for thermal reasons and for speaker reasons the speakers are super tiny and they're often pointed downward or backward and they're bad they don't have what's called a center channel which is where dialogue usually lives if if one exists and they are very small and you know i bought an oled tv from lg which we've talked about on the podcast before it's an excellent fantastic TV in terms of the picture. But over the months, I began to realize the sound, we, we began to have to turn on uh, subtitles. Yeah. And this is not just about people who have impaired hearing or people who are old and who's, you know, listened to too many rock concerts in their youth, both of which are real issues. But they're for, I mean, even younger people have this problem, particularly on shows with like British accents or whatever. This is just the studios are mixing these things in a way that demotes dialogue, and the TV manufacturers are making TVs that that have actually have worse speakers than ever before, even if they have better pictures than yep. ever before. Well, because they, so, they know they know they're selling soundbars. And if you buy a soundbar, whether Sonos's or somebody else's, that's another gadget. That, yep. in, unless your TV is wall mounted and you wall mount the soundbar, it's another gadget that's sitting on your console. So. So so Sonos decided to make the Playbase. It sits under your TV, and I gave it a very good review. It worked. It, it, it totally eliminated our need for subtitles, so it totally solved the dialogue problem while rendering the other sounds, the music, the sound effects, whatever is on the TV program, beautifully. I found I have a very large family room where all my media stuff is. I have a, Sony, uh, a Sonos Play 1 in there, uh, which is a for a very small speaker, very good, $199. I recommend it. Uh, the Playbase was immersive. I know it would have been more immersive, Neela, if I did what I think you would do, which is to put speakers in the corners and do yeah. all that. But it was immersive. It really felt fantastic wherever you sat in my large family room. In addition, it works as a Sonos speaker, and I have a couple of Play Ones. So it can be grouped, it can be ungrouped, it can, you know, can play 
uh, Sonos ha- uh, has an app that feeds, uh, you know, I don't know, what is it, 80 different music services or yeah. something. It'll, it behaves just like any Sonos speaker. Uh, and like all Sonos speakers, it will get Alexa uh, compatibility. If you and buy a dot. If you buy a dot, or, or which an is Echo or whatever. $49 or something. Yeah. And they uh, made the point to me that they are working with Amazon to, to make this a deeply embedded situation, not like the typical the, – those of you who have uh, Echoes or a, a, some other device with Alexa, no, there aren't that many, but there's some you might – uh, know that to use these skills, you often have to learn other wake words uh, beyond just Alexa, which is the main wake word. Uh, you have to learn the word that turns on the special skill. They are working on a situation where you wouldn't need a separate wake word. You would just go into the app on your phone and say, um, whenever I ask for music, play it through the Sono system in my house, not through the Echo speaker. Uh, everything else yeah. continue to play through the echo speaker and that's what they're trying to do so i to me this was it solved my tv problem it is it's going what, to allow seven hundred dollars but it's seven hundred dollars now that to me that's a better value than the thing i wrote about in 2005 which was twelve hundred dollars with and, and then you had to buy speakers and you know it wasn't as good uh this is much more refined. It's much better. It does dual duty between your TV and your and your music listening. And um, so my conclusion was, I'm going to buy it. If you don't want to spend 700 bucks or can't spend 700 bucks, there's a lot of other good alternatives to fix your dialogue problem. I mentioned one that you have also mentioned in the past called Zbox, which is uh, I think about 250 bucks. It's specifically designed to give you a very good center channel for dialogue. Uh, and uh, so you might want to do that. If you're an audiophile, I'm going to let you take this part. <laughs> Tell me there are a number of things about this that you didn't like as an audiophile because you are an audiophile. Yeah. Go I, ahead. I don't know about that. Um, I mean, I try. I'm a <clears throat> dilettante. Uh, I've seen you post Well, pictures. I got Andrew sitting right here. Andrew definitely has better ears And Andrew is an audiophile. And uh, Peter, Peter yeah. down here in D.C. Our, is an audiophile. He's waving. Certainly yes. better ears. These are our producers, yeah. But I will say this. In terms of audio quality, sound reproduction, Sonos is very good. Uh, there's no – there's not really like an argument about it. Like people love – the way Sonos speakers work and their functionality, and Sonos is very good at marketing them. It's very expensive. In terms of, I want to make the like home theater experience in my house better. This product is very expensive, pro- providing not a lot, right? So that Zvox speaker that you mentioned is two hundred fifty bucks. My mother in law actually has one, and it's fun. It do- it does exactly the job that you are talking about, which is. New TVs have bad speakers in them. The TV manufacturers kind of do it on purpose because then you go and buy another gadget from them, right? And and TVs have gotten so cheap that they want to make up the margin. So, I don't know. Vizio is the number one seller of soundbars in America because the speakers in the TV aren't so great. Yeah, but you wouldn't say a Vizio or Zvox soundbar is is as good as a uh, a Sonos. Um, But they're certainly at the high end of – each of those companies' ranges, um, you know, they make very good products that people like. Then there's a whole other part of this, um, and I think this is where Sonos has kind of they kind of dropped the ball because it's a very expensive product with ten drivers in it, and it doesn't actually do surround sound on its own. You have to buy other Sonos speakers and configure them in a somewhat wonky way where it's, there's a private Wi-Fi network for this. And it's all handled automatically, but once you start thinking about how it works, it's very complicated. You have to buy other Sonos speakers. You have to spend more money to get pretty basic surround sound out of the thing. Whereas, you know, there's a Yamaha soundbar that sounds very good, that costs about the same money, that does simulated surround sound with a huge array of drivers. And it just sort of – I don't know why Sonos – didn't go that has more route. than ten drivers. I think it's. I think it has some. I think it might have forty four, like tiny little speakers. Okay, right? but you can do it with ten, right? Then there is 
the next generation of surround sound standards, which is like very wonky. And you know, Dolby is putting out a new system called Atmos, and there's uh, um, there's DTS. Like, there's just stuff happening in the world where the audio experience of movies and TV, and particularly as every TV show turns into a 60-hour streaming full-body experience, you probably want things to sound good because it's so immersive. There's a whole future rushing towards us of new audio protocols, and Sonos is literally not future-proofed against it. Um, so it doesn't support the it doesn't support this thing called DTS. You know, unless you buy all these other Sonos stuff, it doesn't support regular surround. It's it's just a very it's a very basic product that pr- it, uh, you know you said it sounds great. Chris Welch, who does care much about audio, who reviewed it for us on the Verge. He said it sounds great. Sonos has a history of it sounding great. I'm sure it sounds great. But for $700, what you're getting is a very basic product with Sonos functionality. And I think, I just think you can do better for that money. And I think Sonos has a lot of questions to answer if it wants to be serious about putting stuff near your TV that it hasn't really done a good job of answering. Well, we disagree a little on this. Um, I, I, I do think that's a fair assessment if you are, know what DTS is and care about it, or Atmos, or these other things you mentioned. Well, uh, so I'm surprised, I don't think you, I'm surprised you didn't mention HDMI versus optical. Yeah, you I mean, forgot but, that one. But that's like a, <laughs> but that's like a philosophical argument. Like, what should do the decoding? Where should it come from? What should do your HDMI switching? You, you can have those arguments. I think what comes down to me is when I sit down and I'm going to watch Game of Thrones. I shouldn't really have to care about Atmos or DTSX or whatever. It should just be great. Yeah. And the Sonos thing, as it's configured, is not as good as it can be for that function. You know, I I didn't haven't tested a million of these. Um, I can just tell you that listening to Game of Thrones, which I did do, uh, or watch I'm watching Game of Thrones, but listening to the audio <laughs> while you're watching it, which is what you the hot tend new to do. podcast, Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that could be. Could do, I wonder what that would be like. Yeah. Um, you. Uh, it sounded fantastic. Yeah. Um, and and that and that includes the opening music. It includes the dialogue, which is also sometimes, you know, because it's very cinematic. Sometimes the dialogue isn't always clear on a regular TV, just speakers. Um, it sounded wonderful. Um, the the da-da-da-dums and all the serious yeah. stuff, you know, like that, and the sounds of explosions, and every, just everything sounded great to my ears and my wife's ears in this, uh, with this play base. So uh, I like it as a product. I recognize it, it does cost more, uh, and I recognize that for uh, people who... Uh, you know, are cognizant of and care a lot about these uh, audio uh, issues that you raised. This may not be the right product, but I think there's a large middle ground of people, if they have the $700, who would be very happy with this. Yeah. Uh, and that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. By the way, the Yamaha is much more expensive. Than that. It's 46 speakers. Yeah, how much is, is it? Uh, well, on Yamaha, I don't know. On Yamaha's list price, which is rarely the real price, I mean, look, it's sixteen hundred dollars. Yeah, let's see what Amazon's selling it for. Amazon's selling it for sixteen hundred dollars. There you go. So yeah, yeah, so it's much more expensive. But I would say to you, <clears throat> regular people don't buy the Yamaha. Dear listener, bucks. Dear listener, if you think your TV sounds bad, like literally go out and buy almost any five hundred dollars soundbar, and it'll be much better. And I think that's the kind of the main point of all. Or for two hundred dollars more, you're going to get a gorgeous Sonos speaker. <laughs> You are. I'm, yeah, I'm really serious I about this. You're going to get, get a gorgeous Sonos speaker, which streams music from your favorite streaming service. I don't care what your favorite streaming service is. They've got it. It'll stream to it. It'll stream your music off your 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 computer or your phone or your tablet, yeah. whatever you have. It'll do all those things. Yeah, and then in three years when you buy Game of Thrones and whatever 4K format it comes out in, you won't be able to support all the audio. That'd be great. Sorry, All I right. can't help it. I just i i want them to i want them to push harder on these products. Well, let, just let's not let's it. let's just say the founder of the company, who's a wonderful man, uh, John McFarlane. I don't have, by the way, I don't have any stock. I don't get these things for free. Listeners should, probably should know that, but I'll just repeat it. 
I can't help it. I think John McFarlane is a great guy. John uh, recently stepped aside. He's still with the company, and he's still going to be doing you know significant stuff there. But he decided to bring in a new CEO, and they did. And the new CEO is may well do the things you you. I haven't talked to the new CEO, but he may well do the things you would like. Yeah. Um, but John, you know, got them to a point where their name is almost synonymous with great sound for large masses of people. It's a pretty good accomplishment. And, you know, he cares about quality. I will tell you one funny story, and then let's go on to the question of ISPs and carriers. Yeah. Stop me if I've told you this story before. When I say they launched at my conference, I'm referring to the D conference, which was the earlier name of what we now call the Code Conference uh, when we were doing it inside of Dow Jones and Company, the publisher of the Wall Street Journal. And the way he kind of, you know, came out in public was, I, I don't think, he, I don't think he was on stage. I think he just spo- was a sponsor or something and he had a booth and showed the, his thing. And mm-hmm. the key, uh, one of the key parts of it was this $400 controller I mentioned. It was a I don't know if you ever saw it. I did. Uh, I think it's it, beautiful. It, it's a beautiful rectangular thing. It was. This was in the era when the iPod was the hottest thing in the world, and it had a color screen which showed you what music was playing. It might have even showed you the album cover. I can't remember that. But the control mechanism or the, 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 the mechanical mechanism on it was a wheel like on the iPod. Super, I should say superficially like on the iPod, not patent legally like the iPod. <laughs> and it happened that Steve Jobs was speaking at the conference that year. And he hung around. He had a habit of hanging around for a while afterward, which is always great if you're a conference producer, to have an important speaker hang around. And he would go to some of the receptions. And he would go – We had a, in those days we had a room where all the sponsors had booths. And you know, there were 10 or – I'm talking 10 or 12, you know, not that – it wasn't a big trade show, but you know there, were, and so Sonos was in there, and I think John was in there, and uh, uh, Jobs goes over and he looks at the Sonos because of course he cared a lot about music and audio, and when he saw that the controller had a wheel that looked like the iPod, <laughs> he went berserk. <laughs> I wasn't there, but people told me about it. I mean, he went berserk. And really, he threatened, he threatened to sue them. He said something something like this. I'm paraphrasing, you know, because I've heard it. Through, through other people, but it, something like, I'm going to sue you out of existence or wow. something like that. He was just really mad, and he never did it. I mean, you know, he calmed down later, and he, he just never did it, and I think they actually had pretty good relations yeah. eventually. But I mean, um, Apple Music, the only other platform it supports. So, I mean, it's, got, it's on Sonos. That's, like a, yeah. that's a big deal. No, that's, they do have a good relationship, yeah. yeah. So anyway, let's talk about <laughs> the people that bring you yeah. the internet in constricted ways for large amount of money. Okay, so I have my own disclaimer before we begin this. As, as the listeners all know, Walt used to work for the Journal. We reference Walt's past the Journal all the time. I used to work for AOL, which is fine. I've come to accept that, that part of my resume. That's, but it's there's a big piece of this that has I'm to part, do. Listen, I'm partly responsible for the for the success of AOL. <laughs> yeah, it's true. So we <laughs> all of a column I wrote many years we ago. All, we've, anyway. all, we've all contributed to that company in our own way. <laughs> I never worked for them but, though, or owned any of their stock or anything. But all right, you I don't think I was. I, I was issued one share of AOL. Yeah, can stock. I just say, listeners, you got to understand, he didn't really. It's not like he went. And applied to work at AOL. <laughs> he, he, and a number of other wonderful people, some of whom are still at The Verge, um, started a, a. No, I didn't start it. I started The Verge. I joined Engadget. I, I was. Right, you a, joined. I, I'm sorry. Yeah, you yeah. were. Yeah, but other people you the, started Engadget. I was the managing you, editor of Engadget. You were the managing which was part editor part of AOL of a blog, a tech blog, uh, or, or called Engadget, which was part of a group of tech blogs that somebody owned who sold them to AOL. Yeah, That's what long, yes, a you long got history. sold into bondage. You got sold into <laughs> AOL. Yes. It's like saying but I, it's like saying the Israelites yeah. applied to be slaves in Egypt. <laughs> they did not. <laughs> All I'm saying is I worked out of the AOL headquarters here in New York and I had the corp.aol yeah, address. It was a whole thing. I only bring this up because we're going to talk about AOL and Yahoo and Verizon yeah, we are. at length. So here's the deal. Here's the deal. So neither Neelai nor I in our writings and in our podcast, 
have been particularly friendly to the idea that Google and Facebook control a lot of knowledge about you and uh, you know invade your privacy and control uh, between them basically the advertising business online, which is very often annoying to the people that use the internet. And we take them to task for it all the we time. We take them to task for it all the time, but but. They look like Mother Teresa <laughs> compared yeah. to what is coming down the road. Right. And The Verge and our sister site, Recode, have been covering what's coming down the and Box.com. Yep. Another one of our sister sites has been covering what's coming down the road for a while. And you wrote a very tough column about it today. So I'm going to switch roles okay. and say, tell us about your column today, Neela. Oh, I don't have fun. any old ones to read, but tell, tell me about <laughs> your column today because I think it was a little soft. <laughs> yeah. I have this vision of Kara at the Next Code conference asking Tim Armstrong if he's building a nightmare ad tracking machine, which is what yeah. I referred to, to AOL as. Um, so, as I think everybody knows, last week we talked about Congress passing the bill that lets broadband providers use your, per, you know, your browsing data um, and other data that you generate as user networks to sell advertising without your permission. It's like a big deal. Trump signed that bill on Monday. So, the privacy regulations that were going to go into effect- are, But hadn't. But hadn't yet are now canceled. They're not going to go into effect. There is uproar. Um, Ajit Pai, the chairman of the FCC, published an op-ed in the Washington Post today, uh, which was very much on the defensive. Jointly with the chairman of the FTC, the I think. The acting chairman of the FTC. The acting chairman. A whole, an Obama The chairwoman, right? yes. Um, we call that the chair. You know, yeah. Yes. Um, I'm just trying to save you a whole bunch of Over the weekend, there, there was another very strange piece in the Wall Street Journal that had no byline that was like a direct copy. So they're, they're feeling the heat about this about this rule not going into effect. But what is more apparent to me and what this column is about is that every single one of these broadband companies, you know, they're under shareholder pressure to generate new revenue. The market is such that, you know, they're all putting out unlimited plans. The, the, the whole game of getting more revenue out of the networks is kind of coalescing for them into we're going to start owning the content and the advertising that flows over Yeah, the but we're not only talking about the wireless guys with the unlimited pl- – I mean we're talking about the wire oh, guys. The wire guys. Yeah, and the, 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 it's the whole market of this. And the one – Including Comcast, which disclaimer – Yeah, uh, Comcast. Own, uh, is a minority shareholder in – In Vox Media. Vox Media. So you look us. at but, – so, but, but just uh, – you know, and I've been very tough on Comcast in the past and I'm, I'm certain I'll continue to be. But Comcast invested in a pretty that's high you're, end. You're uh, gone sorry. someday, but that's yeah. a different story. Uh, but Comcast you know, acquired NBC Universal, right? Um, which is a very high end media company. It cost them a lot of money. They have pumped more money into it, and they've done a good job generating fairly high end media content out of NBC Universal. All right. credit where credit's due. AT and T bought Directv, which is a major player in distribution of high-end television content. They're trying to buy Time Warner, which owns CNN and HBO, right? They're, they're all at the top of the chain. What Verizon is doing is mm, different, <laughs> right? Verizon bought AOL, which in turn bought the Huffington Post. They're about to buy Yahoo. These are zombie companies that generate not great content for the most part. Our friends at Engadget and TechCrunch accepted, but only them. Everything else is gone. No, I'm kidding. Um, Yahoo generates fantasy tons. sports. Yeah, Yahoo generates tons of like automatic content, right? They they do stock yeah. tickers and sports they stats, do. and that's right. And they have some great journalists, but for the most part, Yahoo's free pages generated by computers. Verizon also does a ton of tracking on its network. AOL, and this is why I issued the disclaimer about AOL at the top. AOL has done nothing but buy ad tech and ad tracking companies since two thousand nine. It's just this incredible string of ad tech. That is AOL's value. It's not actually the content they generate. It's the ad tech that they This that is they not apply. the AOL you remember from the disk and dial-up days. This AOL is, is an ad thing. tech company at its core. So Verizon And Verizon owns them. Verizon owns them. So Verizon can take AOL's ad tech, its data from its network, which it can now use without your permission. And Yahoo's stuff. And Yahoo's huge scale of cheap content. 
and turn into this massive competitor to Google, and they can go out into the market and say to advertisers, hey, our tracking is actually better than Google's because you can't block it. It's built into the network. So if you want to attract 25-year-old millennial influencers who want to buy a, a, a home theater speaker, we're going to find them exactly because we know what they're doing and they can't turn it off. And when they go to Yahoo Sports, we'll show them your ad. When they go to, when they type in some search term and some weird AOL content farm webpage comes up and they've gamed it, we'll show them your ad. We'll just inject ads anywhere you want. That to me is that's the literally a nightmare scenario of tracking. It's happening at the network level, where the network that you are connected to, that you pay for access to, is tracking you to to take your data, sell it to advertisers, not your data in particular, but access to your data so they can target ads to you. And then your entire internet experience will be full of these weird targeted ads. On top of it, I'm just going to point this out, Yahoo is a company, not the greatest track record for protecting your fucking information. No. Terrible. <laughs> horrible. So horrible. It's just, a, it's just this combination billions, nightmare billions mess. Billions of pieces of information have been, ha- have been hacked and leaked out of there. Yeah. Uh, I would also point out that Verizon uh, in the ad world, which most consumers don't you know, read about or know about, brags that they have something called super cookies. Yep. And – I, I don't personally understand what they are, but they're really hard to get rid of, apparently. And there is an opt-out, and I have opted out of them. This is Verizon Wireless. Yep. Verizon is my ISP wirelessly on my phone and in terms of my house because I'm a Fios customer. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure there's any way for me to opt out of anything on Fios. I don't know. I don't think so. So um, this is a this is a – the kind of thing you would expect the government to regulate. Now, let me be clear. They, everything you said is true, but as far as I know, they are not anywhere near yet doing this this thing that, yeah. that we can see coming down the, the road. The reason that, I, that I'm so strong on it is it's not a secret, right? You know, be, no, be, no, Ben Popper and I wrote this column today, uh, this piece, and we were you know, debating like how much you – know, we did some reporting. We talked to some people for it. But all of this stuff is just – it's what Verizon and in particular AOL CEO Tim Armstrong are saying their plan is. They're out in front and I think it's been undercovered because it honestly just seems so comically evil. But with the rollback of the, the privacy rules that we're going to go into effect, this is their plan to make more money from their network. It, it's just so bluntly – it's like – And for many, many years, I have been baffled – I've probably said it on the podcast before. I don't care. I'm going to say it again. The, these companies are wealthy companies. They make a lot of money. They, If you look at your bill for internet access, wireless or wired, it's high. There's a considerable profit in that. These are not struggling companies. I've never seen an industry so unhappy with the business they're in yeah. and so desperate to be in other businesses. And that's what this – they're all doing it, but in particular Verizon, as Neilai said – is, is trying to just get into a whole other business, which kind of closes a loop with the business they're in. I mean, they're not – it's not a, a completely dissociated business, but, you know, their their power will be immense. They haven't done this yet. The conservative Trump regulators, Ajit Pai in particular, are saying – I think he said in, and the FTC person said in this piece, they have shown no – you know, no plan to do this. And even if they did, we have other privacy rules that haven't been blocked or rolled back. We just want to put the enforcement in the hands of the FTC, not the FCC. And that's what this is really about. And and headlines that you've been reading, which I assume include ours, are all, you know, wrong and hysterical. I think they use the word hysterical. But so one of his arguments... And I, I really I'm just trying to give the other side. I there's think another side out there. Fair. Um, so, you know, his argument is the FTC traditionally has regu- – I mean this comes down to the fact that broadband providers own a bunch of communications infrastructure and they're regulated traditionally by the FCC. And companies like Google and Facebook don't actually own any communications infrastructure and they're regulated by the FTC. So Facebook gets in trouble. They sign a long consent decree with the FTC. The FT, I want to say FT, FTC. The Trade yeah. Commission, right. 
Uh, Google gets in trouble. They sent a long consent degree with the FTC. Uh, what's a good example of this? Google used to drive around cars snooping Wi-Fi networks. Do you remember this? It was like a big scandal forever ago. Right. Like classic Google stuff. Uh, FTC smacked them down. Um, Facebook did Facebook Beacon. Do you remember this? They like put a bug on every web page. It was terrifying Facebook stuff. Smacked. Right. And so the the ISPs are saying, well, we should be regulated the same as Google and Facebook. And the counter argument is, well, if consumers hate Google and Facebook, it you know, might not be easy because they're Google and Facebook, but they can just stop using them. They can do other right. things on the internet. You can use DuckDuckGo. Right. You can You use, can just quit oh, Facebook and be quit happy. Facebook, use Twitter <laughs> and be happy. <laughs> you just be happy. <laughs> or uh, use some competitor yeah, to there, Facebook. There's all kinds of stuff you yeah. can do. If you are unhappy with your broadband connection at your house, we actually we published a chart today. Ajit Pai, the chairman of the FCC, has exactly two choices for broadband at his house in Washington, D.C. Most of the country for high-speed broadband has one choice. What are choices? Comcast and RCN? Comcast and Fios. Yeah, oh, yes, Fios, yeah. Um, that's great. I mean, that's like the dream <laughs> that Comcast oh, and Verizon— I've had Fios for like almost 10 uh, years No, but I'm saying the idea that Comcast and Verizon are actually fighting over you is like a dream scenario. That doesn't happen for most people in most places. That's not true for you? It's, it's not true for me at all. My choices in New York are Spectrum or Fios. And, and Verizon has done such a bad job of competing in New York and New Jersey that both states have sued Verizon for not living up to the— promises it made when it got all kinds of tax incentives to build out fiber in, in, in the two states. So like, this is not a company that's great at delivering competition. But Pai, in his, you know, in his uh, op-ed today in the Post, said this is a mistake. It's a red herring. Verizon only has 35% of the broadband market, and oh, yeah, Google like has this. 80% of the search market. What's the real monopoly? <laughs> and it's like, dude, Google doesn't have to put fiber in the ground. Like, they're just making a product that's competitive in their space and winning. And maybe they should, you know, you could argue that Google, you know, Bing can never catch up to Google because it doesn't have the volume of incoming consumer data that makes a search engine better. Microsoft has made that argument many times in the past. But that is a totally different situation than Veri like you, Verizon is literally your only and choice besides for access which, to the internet. And besides which, Verizon... AT&T, you know, Sprint, T-Mobile, whatever Spectrum is. Uh, <laughs> Spectrum is the rebranding of Charter and Time Warner Cable. Okay. Uh, Comcast, uh, these guys are communications companies, which for all other purposes are regulated by the FCC. Yep. So you are their chief regulator, and you are saying that on this issue – which is an incredibly important issue, which goes to the to the possible, and I have to say that, a possible, because it, as far as I know it isn't happening yet, abuse of their of their position as uh, you know, a a communications service provider, you are saying, eh, you know, talk to the FTC, not us. And, and you know, to me that's just yeah, you know, I, that's just not the right thing. I mean that, that you regulate them right all the time, and I so I will give uh, Pi some credit, Chairman Pi some credit. There is like a a rational structure that you know philosophically he's operating in, which is he thinks there should be more broadband deployed in the United States, right? I mean, every time he talks, every time he speaks, and he's right. uh, Jay Kastrakis and I read and watch everything he does with an eagle eye. He's very consistent that what he wants is there for there to be more broadband deployed in the United States. And his philosophical framework is, well, if the networks were more lucrative, more people would want to build them. No, that's bull. <laughs> that's, they're already but, super lucrative. They're already super lucrative. And there are places in America— I mean, frankly, Fios, Verizon's cost more than Comcast. I mean, Wall Street has noticed this, and they've actually slowed down their deployment of Fios from what their original plan was years ago. Because uh, Comcast isn't putting fiber up to every house, and the whole idea of FiOS is that the fiber does. I mean, I have fiber running up to my house. Yeah, I mean, I have FiOS, and we have, there's a fiber line up into my apartment in my apartment building. Yeah, um, it's ex and that's it's expensive. expensive. Whereas FiOS, uh, Comcast drops a fiber line in the neighborhood, and then they use copper to to connect from that to the houses. Yeah, and they uh, can still achieve pretty high speed, but uh, not everywhere, and and 
and it's not symmet- one of the cool things about FiOS is that it's symmetrical. Um, so um, you know, I have I think I have a plan that gives me eighty five down, but it also gives me eighty five up. Yeah, and that's pretty good. If I, I mean, <laughs> here in New York City, people talk about getting FiOS like their whole life is going to change, right? Because Spectrum yeah. is so bad. Um, but you know, just on the uh, here's a little. But random... it's fair. But the point is, it is lucrative, and his notion that if it were more lucrative, there'd be more broadband, it just makes no sense. Yeah, and that's that's even and it's even worse on the wireless side. I mean. I, I know of no evidence that, that you know, I, T-Mobile and Sprint struggle for a whole bunch of reasons. That's another whole podcast. But but Verizon AT&T are the wireless parts of their businesses, as far as I know, are highly profitable. Yeah. I mean, it just – but that's his philosophical framework. And I, I think you – the listeners listening to me get all worked up and on, certainly on the Vergecast, I get all worked up and we write strongly worded columns about this stuff. It's not that I don't understand the where the sort of Republican free market side of this argument comes from. That's their they, they think that if there's more deployment, there'll be more competition and consumer preferences will be rewarded. And I, my pushback or my you know every time they say that, what I think is, well, it hasn't been true at all, right? Like most of the country, still only has but one or two providers, and these networks are extraordinarily lucrative. These companies just don't want to compete. And I think we'd all be much better off if our sort of regulatory framework drove them to either compete or where that we see competition doesn't exist or is failing to represent some policy goals, we should probably put those rules into place. And I I just I haven't seen Pi address that side of the argument. I think if he's going to be the chief regulator for these companies, he needs to at least acknowledge that that side of the argument exists instead of writing op-eds about how industry sock puppets are causing hysteria because <laughs> I, you know, like we you know, we've made videos about it, we write articles about it. Whenever I tweet about broadband policy or privacy policy around broadband, you I just uh, you know, you've been on Twitter a long time. I've been on Twitter a long time. You don't expect a tweet with a screenshot of twelve dense bullet points about internet privacy to instantly get a thousand retweets. But that's been happening for me yeah. these past few weeks, and I just think there's a responsibility from these regulators to acknowledge people are extremely concerned about these issues, and it's the it's not being whipped up by agents of Google. It's being whipped up by regular people who know they don't have choices. So here's the short-term best thing for him to do. Um, first of all, he should accept your invitation, longstanding, to, <laughs> to appear on the Verge cast. He really should. Or the but show. now I want to add to yeah. that. If he doesn't like the Verge cast for some reason, I don't know. Maybe he doesn't like Dieter Bone, who we have to mention every week, <laughs> yeah. and who is on the Verge cast, uh, although – if he knew Dieter, he'd know Dieter is a swell guy. Dieter's much uh, nicer than you and me. Much right? nicer than you and me. <laughs> much. I mean, way. Oh, by the way, there's our Dieter mention. Oh, I, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. He's orders of magnitude nicer <laughs> than you and I. But if he doesn't like that one, yeah. thinks maybe there's too many reporters on it or something, he come on here. We've never had a guest on here, but we'll yeah. have him on here. We should do it. And we'll devote the whole thing. We'll do a two-hour edition if he wants. Yeah. And, and we'll, yeah, we'll well, he's got a fancy this. new studio in D.C., I got to. I'm. I'm. You know. A mile from his office, and yeah. I've got a fancy studio here. There you go. And, and I'll go. I'll even go to the FCC if they have a studio. <laughs> Do you think the FCC has any communications equipment in it? Oh, th- <laughs> that's another whole story. Every cellular carrier, even the ones that don't serve DC, you get perfect reception in the FCC yeah. building. <laughs> I don't know why. It's a mystery. <laughs> You could be four levels down in the FCC parking garage. Perfect reception. <laughs> yeah, we'll see if we can get him on. We should. Uh, we we kind of let up on him for a minute, and now he's doing stuff again. And uh, we'll start. We'll start asking the FCC. Again. The right. FCC. Whenever we ask them, they very politely tell us you're on the list. But I don't know how long that list is. I don't know what our position on that list is. <laughs> so we'll see how it's going. But I, I think it's important. I, you know. The Verge has a huge platform. We are staffed by nerds. We are read by millions of very smart, very wonky people every month. And I think we're uniquely situated to explain what is going on with broadband policy. So I, it's important to me that we keep doing it, even though it sometimes seems very boring and like we're shouting at the wall. 
But I, I think these people need to know that we're paying attention. Well, I think you agree with me. It, this is the single most revolutionary engine of economic and social change that's ever existed. And we probably shouldn't let just a handful of corporations run away with it. Yeah, I agree. Anyhow, so look, we ended on some hope. I, I was worried the ISP section would end on, on a downturn, but we, we pulled it back around. Well, I insisted on having the ISP section. So. It's important to me. But that said... We've run well out of time here. We'll be back next week. Please keep sending your intros to, to me and Walt. We love them the most. Uh, you can also just tweet feedback at us. Walt is at Walt Mossberg. I'm at Reckless. Uh, if you're interested in listening to other great shows about technology and media, we have those. Uh, Dieter and I host The Vergecast. Chairman Pai is welcome on it whenever he wishes. Um, Lauren Good hosts uh, Too Embarrassed to Ask. Actually, this week... Uh, Recode has a great new reporter named Tony Rom, who uh, great new policy reporter, great new yeah. policy reporter, and he is on Too Embarrassed to Ask with Lauren this week, talking about changes in policy. So if you're interested, check that out. Uh, Peter Kafka hosts Recode Media, and Kara Swisher hosts the very excellent Recode Decode. So there's tons of stuff to listen to, all very in depth. I'm actually, I know Kara and Tim Armstrong from AOL talk a lot. I'm hoping she has him on Recode Decode soon to talk about this oath stuff because it. It is just out there. But anyhow, there's all kinds of stuff to listen to. It's all on iTunes. Go to iTunes.com. Oaf. Is that oaf? Oaf. Did you say oaf? Oath. O-A-F. It sounds kind of sounds... <laughs> oh, God. Zombie. <laughs> zombie company. It's going to kill us all. Anyway, great stuff to listen to. It's all at iTunes.com slash Verge. You can buy a t-shirt, a Control-Alt-Delete t-shirt, I think. You can the- buy a Control-Alt-Delete sticker, which, by the way, comes in a bonus pack. With a Verge sticker and, I don't know, a circuit breaker sticker. It's got everything. Yeah, everything you need to make your laptop look look like you're real smart. And we'll be back next week. That was a really good one. Thanks, Walt. Thanks, Neelay.